welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. So I'm kind of surprised after last week that uh, some of y'all came back because I told you that this week particularly was going to be really challenging because we're going to be talking about what happens to the world, to our lives when the wheels come off, when we forget who we are, when our identity has gotten um, uh, uh, disconnected. And whether you use my, my but actually candidly following the popcorn bucket illustration, I feel not at all bad about my one, first button, first hole illustration, which he always teases me about or whatever it is. When, when, when we get disconnected, from the source of our life, it ought not be surprises that we get really good at death. That's, in a nutshell, where we're going this morning. What happens when we don't take seriously God's counsel to us, planted us in the garden which he has built for us and which we will find the full expression of our freedom and life. But he says, don't, don't eat and, and, and I think a probably more accurate translation is don't eat yet from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You're not ready for it. It'll kill you. And we have been trying to prove him wrong ever since. And as it turns out, reality bites. Reality will always win. And because God is the arbiter of reality, having spoken it into being, we keep banging our heads against that core reality. So this is where we are. Last week we talked about where our identity comes from, what it, how it's expressed, how it's maintained. This week we're going to talk about what happens when we forget who we are. Next week we'll talk about the wrestling match that has to occur in all of us on the way back home to our true selves. And then uh, in the fourth week, Michael will talk about how that identity is restored and re-enabled in the power of the Spirit through surrender and submission to Christ. It's a, it's a brief uh, snapshot. At some level, this ought to sound very familiar. It has defined in large measure kind of who we are as a church from, from the get-go. Uh, just have occasion as we come up to our 10th anniversary to think about kind of the through lines. Darren asked about one of them, but, but there are so many different through lines that we've just, I think, in some way just kind of stumbled on by the, by the gift of the Spirit, as he has kind of at key moments brought people and situations and books and conferences and uh, words from, from folks that have kept us, and this has become one of those. The, the, you can't be at the garden very long before sooner or later the issue of identity in Christ comes up because everything centers and brings us back to that. So... Uh, we pick the story up in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Remember, we're coming out of the first two chapters, uh, knowing who we are. We are the image of God, knowing what we're here for. We're here to care for the planet as representatives of God. We are parts of the image of God. The goal of the image is to care for the planet. In order for us to do that wisely and well, we need to be in interdependent relationships with others, and we need to be independent from others. So there is the impulse to independence, uh, balancing the tension with interdependence, the longing for togetherness. We feel the tension of that. We are created from the dirt, and we are filled with the breath of God, so we 
sit in that intermediary thin space that enables us to care well for the planet and to worship well the Father from whom we gain our identity. We are built for relationships of oneness and intimacy. In fact, those are required in order for us to be human. That's kind of a summation of where we were last week. This week, uh, that gets tested. And uh, unlike Jesus, for whom identity is tested and he succeeds in the test, passes the test, uh, we not so much. Uh, so here we are. Uh, G.K. Chesterton said, the doctrine of original sin is the only doctrine that bears witness of itself. All you got to do is look around and say, something went sideways somewhere so long ago. That's this. Verse 1. Uh, and I'm going to be reading excerpts of the third chapter, but I'm going to read the whole, more or less the whole thing, so bear with me. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from the tree in the garden? Well, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. Well, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, that it was pleasing to the eye, and it was desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it, and gave to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened. They realized they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made loin coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he walked in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. He said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me from the fruit of the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what? Is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Then skipping down to verse 16, we begin this language of cursing, and we pick it up as it applies specifically to human beings. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children, but your desire will be for your husband. However, he will rule over you. To the man, he said, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. You will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Then down in verse 20, and the man, Adam, named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all living. 
And then finally, verse 22, the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. It is a sad and painful story. Um, I think it's critical for us to remember, even in looking at this, the shadow side of this story, to remember that God was not caught unawares by this story. That in fact, the plan for redeeming this was in place prior to its ever having happened. That's very difficult for us to get our heads around. Uh, because we think, well, if he knew, then why didn't he just head it off at the pass? And the realization is, in order for us to be the full, free, functioning image of God, we have to have the capacity not to be. Otherwise, it's a forced robotic. He can make angels by the hundreds of thousands and has present in the room. We are unaware. But he can... But to make his image, to make his image, those who will represent him, those who will stand in his stead, requires those whose heart is aligned to him by love, not obligation, duty, or fear. And in order for that to be true, we have to have the option of turning away. And turning away uh, is that temptation, that test. We have to recognize that in order to be who we are, we have to acknowledge that God is who he is and that our orientation, our relationship to him is what enables us to be who we are. So you'll notice that the, the serpent here, and by the way, lest we start to give him a bad rap, let's remember that the serpent is a creation of God whose task it is throughout the Old and New Testaments among his tasks as the Satan is to test God's people's ability to remember who they are under stress. That's what he does. Okay, and that's very hard for us because we think we've been trained in a dualistic, right, good, evil, that Satan is over here and God is over here and there's kind of a wrestling match and who knows for sure whether it'll go to the third or fourth round. No, the Old Testament does not allow that misunderstanding. The Satan, like every other creation, is under God's control. And here his role is to test precisely the point that was in the, in, in the uh, conversation that we just had. Do you remember who you are and what it takes to be who you are when other options present themselves, because if you, which is really the essence of the knowledge of good and evil, right? The knowledge of good and evil is not intellectual, it's existential. It's, it's not do you know things about evil, it's do you, do you existentially experience evil? You're not built for that. Trust me on this one. It will kill you. This is the essential warning. It's not prohibition for the sake of fear. God's afraid that we'll know stuff that he knows and mount a rebellion. God's a tad smarter than that, right? We're not, because that's essentially what we think. He's not really all that good. He's withholding. 
right? And, and, and what's being tested is, do we remember the supply line of our identity? Otherwise, we end up existentially entering into the actual knowing of good and evil. Now, here's the beauty of this and the hard part of it. We actually were intended, if I understand this correctly, to learn into this kind of knowledge. In fact, the whole eastern side of the church understands that this is a temporary restriction for the sake of maturation. That we need to be, and then now we have to learn how to be the image of God with existential knowledge, experiential knowledge that we were not initially built for. So we have to both learn how to fly the plane and build it at the same time. That's the story, essentially, of Genesis 3 and human history. So now God is saying, okay, now you're still the image of God. We have to enable you to be who you are with knowledge that you weren't initially built for, but you decided to take on your own. That's going to hurt. That's going to leave a mark. Okay, that's the however, the way you have chosen to achieve the outcome that I built you for in the first place. Right? So... Uh, the, the serpent's task is to test. Do you remember who you are? He does it with Jesus in the, in the desert. Remember in, in, in Matthew chapter 4, he does it with Job at the beginning. He does it with the children of Israel in the desert. Do you remember who you are? And especially in seasons when it's easier to take a shortcut, when identity will cost you something. Do you remember who you are? And, and of course, the woman's response is, uh, well, we, we, can, we can eat from, from the trees of the garden and, and adds this, this, this fence around the law. He said, don't, don't eat from it and don't touch it. Well, he didn't actually say that. And by the way, if you look back in Genesis 2, you discover that she wasn't present except in the man at the time. It was to the man, to the Adam, that he said, don't eat from that. So where did the don't touch it come from? Did he misinform her? Did she build a fence as a way of protecting? We don't know. But we now have this point of leverage. You won't surely die. You will be like God. Both two. Both statements, did, did, he did not deceive her. He told her the God's honest truth. Do you see what I'm saying here? And the outcome of it, and the problem was, of course, you're not built for that knowledge yet. You're not God. You will never be God. You have to grow into capacity to have good and evil held together without being pulled apart by it. Otherwise, it'll kill you. You will lose your sense of who you are, which is, of course, precisely what happened. Please notice as well her rationale, it's precisely the same rationale with which we rationalize whatever it is that we want to do. Anybody else know how to blow yourself up with perfectly good reasons? <laughs> there is a perfect reason to do everything I want to do when I want to do it. I will find it. It doesn't have to be good for you. It just has to be good for me. So she sees that the tree is good for food, that it is beautiful to look at. And, oh, by the way, Icing on the cake has the capacity to make one wise. There are things about which it's not all that good to be wise. We live in a culture in which wisdom 
There are certain types of knowing that it's best for you not to know. But because we suffer from disabling FOMO, we're terrified that there's something out there that will make sense of the crazy if we just know it. And as a result, we have information, as you know, is doubling. Data, let me just say it that way, data is increasing at unmanageable levels, yes? And, and we do, it's so fast that we don't even know how to convert the data into facts, let alone facts into information, let alone information into wisdom, right? Wisdom is not found by collecting facts. Wisdom is found by relationship with God. That's the humility piece that gets tested here. At the root, the loss of identity is a, is a decision that I know better than God the truth about myself. So you will, we will learn over the next season here that the way back home is through the doorway of humility. Notice to what we are sentenced at the end. Dirt, humus, humbling, humility. Why? Because that's the only way we're going to get back home, to remember what's true about us. So you will be like God, and not a single one of the two of them, remember they are here together, not a single one of them thought to say, no, we're good. No, literally, we're good. That's what he said. He said it multiple times, first, first chapter of Genesis. It's good. It's very good. We're good. We don't need any help here. We work. That's as good as it gets for us. Instead, the lust for more, the longing for more for which we were not built, increases our reach. So she eats from the fruit of the tree. We're still fine, by the way. She gives to him. And it's only when he eats that their eyes are now opened. Remember, they're one. Up until that very moment, there was a chance for restoration. This is a critical piece, right? Because we want to throw Eve under the bus like he does. <laughs> right? Ah! No, no. It's not until he abdicates his responsibility to care for her and to care for them through her, that their eyes are opened. And notice what happens, verse six, or excuse me, verse seven, the eyes of both of them were open and they knew that they were naked. Remember the nakedness was indicative of their intimacy, which was necessary for their humanity. We talked about that last week. So the very first casualty of their eyes being opened, instead of naked, known without shame, they are now naked and ashamed. And the first response is to hide. And please notice, because I do this almost every time I do pre-marriage counseling, this is one of the texts that I refer to, from whom do we hide first? And the answer almost is inevitably God, and the answer is wrong. We don't first hide from God, we first hide from each other. So the intimacy that is, notice, they've sewed fig leaves together so that they wouldn't be known by each other. 
this is the first casualty, the very thing, the intimacy, it's not good for the man to be alone, remember that? The intimacy that is necessary for us to be human is the very first casualty of our shame. We start to hide from each other. Here's the problem. We're still built for intimacy. We still long for it. We still know it's a fundamental essential. We just don't know how to do it well anymore. Then, having hidden from each other in shame, we now hide from God in fear. So this is, please notice how, how this, when the, when the center fails, it ripples out in damage. Right? So first of all, our, our relationship, essential for our identity, is, is, is broken and shattered. Anybody still feel the ramifications of that? Right? We still struggle with it at massive levels. Um, and, 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 then, and then we hear the sound of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and there is no sadder verse in the entirety of Scripture than God's heartbreak. Adam, man, where are you? I don't think when God asks a question, it's so that he can acquire knowledge. <laughs> it's a mirror. Adam? Where are you? Do you know where you are? I heard the sound of you in the garden and I hid myself because I was afraid. That's what happens. A shame leads to hiding from one another. Fear leads to hiding from God. God's love is in pursuit and it is fear that keeps us from being found. This is a theme that runs through the entirety. What is it finally that, ca that casts out fear? is love, is love. We have to risk being loved by God. And it's terrifying, especially when you've done something wrong, which is all of us all the time. If we can't let God love us when we are broken and bruised by our own hand, we can't let God love us, period, right? So this is the, this is the press that, that we're learning here. Identity, the center fails, now the wheels start to come off. Whatever image you want to use, the kite string gets broken and now we're trash blowing in the wind. Figure out your image, but, 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 but that's what's going on here, right? Uh, we're afraid and so we hide and, 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 and then when we're confronted, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you to eat? There is an answer to that question. And the answer is, yes, I did. I think human history would be radically different if one of the two of them would have said, yeah. But neither of them did that. Neither of us did that. What did we do? Did you eat? Hey, 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 hey. Somebody is to blame for my stupid. And it's not me, it's either you or the woman you gave me, but somebody's going down for this one. I was fine, I was fine. Anybody see yourself in that mirror? In fact, one of the fastest ways you can know you're in trouble is when everybody else is to blame for how dumb you are. Right? Because when you lose the center, guess what happens? Somebody's gotta hold your life together. And nobody's stepping up to the plate here Nobody's stepping up, nobody's helping me. 
Somebody help the boy. No, 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 no. And then, of course, what have you done? He says to her. And she does not say. She says, the devil made me do it. The serpent deceived me. No, he didn't. He just told you the truth. And, and the reason the story is told this way, kind of semi-comically, because, in the, in the, because this is a deeply painful story. It's like one of Aesop's fables in which you're kind of laughing your way through until you realize, oh man, those kids are going to get fried in that toaster oven there in that gingerbread house. <laughs> you, you, you know what I mean? It's, it's like, oh, ah. You know, why do we tell those stories to kids? We shouldn't tell those stories to kids. No wonder they'd see monsters under the bed, because they're there! Anyway, um, so, 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 so she blames the serpent. And then we begin this story, and here's where one of the things goes sideways often. We think that God is punishing them. It starts with the curse language to the serpent, and then the language to the woman and to the man. And we think that what God is doing is, okay, you've broken my rules, so now I have to punish you, and here's what's going to happen as my punishment on you, and we call that curse. In the Old Testament, curse is not cause. It's consequence. It's what happens when you get disconnected from the source of reality. Curse is not God's idea. Curse is what happens when you put the wrong fuel in the tank. It doesn't work. It, it breaks. God's character is not all of a sudden turned against you in opposition. You are turned in opposition to God's character. Right? And because it's oppositional to your uh, desires or your longing or whatever it is, you feel that as oppositional to you. You feel that as God's cursing you. No, he's just loving you really well. But because you're misaligned to love, you get rolled over by it. That's called curse. And please notice how it works here. He says to the woman, uh, it, 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 it's now going to be painful for you to bear children. He's not just talking about the actual physical process of childbearing. He's talking about the pain that inevitably comes to a mama who has to let that child first separate from her body and then separate from herself. There is a massive shift in identity that occurs in those things. And I do not know of a single woman with whom I have ever walked for any length of time who does not feel the pain of childbirth. And I'm not talking about, simply about, the actual physical pain of delivering a baby, which is overwhelming. It's like having partnered with Judy in, in three of these, partnered is a euphemism. I held my, her hand and I tried not to faint. <laughs> Breathe! Okay, okay, I'll breathe. No, not you, bozo, her. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's just insane to think of, of, of but that's not all that he's talking about. He's talking about the fact that the thing you were built for, this cause a man shall leave his father and his mother, right? That differentiation is supposed to be a natural, normal process 
by which we release our children to their full selves into the world without reference to us. But when you've forgotten who you are, it's almost impossible for mamas not to attach their identity to being a mama. Pain in childbirth is watching that boy, that girl walk away from you and not need you when you sustain their life. Why does he do that? Because your identity is not mama. Your identity is part of the image of God expressed for a time as mama. You, you with me? And, 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 and so, so, so that dynamic, and, and then he goes on and says, it's, it, sorry, but it's, it's even harder than this. Is what's going to happen is your desire, both sexual and, and relational, is going to be towards your husband. There's going to be this draw to you. And while he's talking here in the language of, 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 of marriage here, I think we can extrapolate this out. There is, there is a, a, a and, and often for varying reasons, and we'll talk about why in a minute, the, there is a longing for connection, for protection, for identity, for, for place, for, it, it, it's not about weakness of women, it's about the fact that women carry the longing for intimacy for the race because they can't survive without it. By the way, men, we can't survive without it either. We've just narcotized our pain slightly longer. So here, your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. So the desire for connection, the longing for intimacy that puts you in the crosshairs of his stupid, of his pain, of his loss of identity, of his not knowing who he is and still the longing, still the desire. 80% of the couples that eventually find their way into marriage counseling primarily come because the wife wants help to save the marriage. I have had, over, the, over 40 years, I've had a few men come, my marriage has fallen apart, completely overwhelmed by the number of women who say, and now, now candidly, sometimes, uh, they're the, they're the, they're, they just want me to tell their husband how to behave, right? I know how he should be the leader of the home, and if he'd just follow my directions, he'd be a great leader. <laughs> yeah, that actually is not going to work really well. <laughs> I don't know if you noticed there, but you're wearing the wrong hat, uh, if that's a hat that's in your household. Uh, but nonetheless, we, we, so, 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 so you with me on this, though, that there is this, this desire for intimacy, desire for closeness, longing for connection, and yet at the same time, because we have lost alignment with the center, it's now become a power struggle. So women end up using sexuality often as a way of gaining coverage, a way of gaining protection, a way of gaining place. What happens to men's use of sexuality? We'll look at it here in verse 20. Uh, well, wait, sorry, let me finish what happens to the man, and then we'll come back to verse 20. Hang on to that thought. To the man, he said, cursed is the ground because of you. What's happening? We were built for a relationship of support of the ground. The ground was built to trust us, to be in alignment with us, to produce its best under our care. And when we have lost our identity, the dirt itself 
is unable to cooperate with us anymore because it sees, as is evident by our culture all around us, that we will do it harm. Friends, disciples of Jesus ought to be radical environmentalists. We ought to be engaged in creation care. It's what we're built for. Right? That, that's what we're built for. Here's the challenge that, that we feel, is that the earth doesn't make it really easy all the time to care for it. And we blame the earth. Romans says, the earth is waiting for you to get your act together. It is groaning in travail. We experienced a groan of travail here a couple of weeks ago up around Ridgecrest. Right? And everybody panics. What's happening? The earth's quaking. No, 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 no. You've forgotten who you are. I mean, you, you want to look at the wildfire season. You want to look at the spread of, spread of, of, uh, of, of killer winds, of global warming. And whatever you want to do, you can argue till the cows come home. You know, is human contributing to the carbon, no, you're starting too late. The reason the earth is falling apart is because we have forgotten who we are back at the beginning. So, so whether, whether, whether you use charcoal or not is probably less important than whether you remember who you are, right? By the way, can we do some little thing to help? Okay, um, so, 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 so you see where he's going here though, right? It's, 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 the earth itself is out of alignment with us because we're out of alignment with, with God. And then verse 20, finally we get to this place, the man named his wife Eve, and in so doing, we talked about this a couple of three weeks ago, exercises power, authority over her the way, same way he did with the animals in chapter two. And that relationship, which was intended to enable him to be human, has now become a relationship of power and dominance and hierarchy, authority. And because it's intended to make him human, when he shifts that foundation, guess what happens to his use of power? It is no longer human. It is used to dominate rather than to empower. And of course, she has power too, but she has been trained back in verse 13 or, or whatever it is, 16. She has been trained to use her power, which she still has as part of the image of God, but now she uses it to manipulate in general. Now, this is not always true, uh, but essentially, if you can kind of extrapolate out the person in the position of, 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 of positional power will use his or her power because power shifts in our culture, yes? Uh, to, to, to dominate, to acquire more. The person who sees themselves in the weaker position will use their power to manipulate, to acquire more power so that they can be in charge and protect themselves. Is what happens when we're ashamed, when we're afraid, we start to hide from God, from ourselves and from e uh, e each other, because in blame we're hiding from ourselves, right? And uh, the middle falls apart. So we have, um, uh, this, this relationship now, which was intended to be life-giving and, and built on intimacy, 
uh, and please notice uh, just one way that this falls apart, particularly in our culture, uh, is, is, is in the relationships between genders. There's a straight line from this moment to Me Too uh, movement of the last couple of years. This is a straight line because what happens is sexuality gets weaponized. And, it, and in general, it's not, it's not ultimately about sex. It's about power. It's about dominance. It's about, I'll show you who's in charge. Dear God, please notice, sexuality was intended to reinforce five-dimensional intimacy when it gets weaponized. All, the whole thing falls apart. And we struggle because we're still built as the image of God for real longing, for real desire. But when we disconnect it from five-dimensional intimacy, when we dis di disconnect sexuality from responsibility, remember the primary function of sexuality is, is children. There's a relationship within which children thrive. And when we disconnect sexuality from that pattern of relationship, when we turn it into a weapon, when we turn it into power, please notice what happens is all we're left with is pleasure. Here's the problem. Sexuality that has reduced to pleasure will not be pleasurable very long because it's built for pleasure as a reinforcement of intimacy. When this goes, the icing has no cake to sit on. How do you like that one? Was that any good? <laughs> I like that one. That's pretty cool. <laughs> okay, okay. So, so, so what ends up happening there, by the way, because uh, sexual pleasure is a law of diminishing returns, it does not take long before we will do whatever we need to do to maximize pleasure as a way of masking the pain of the loss of intimacy. It's a catch-22, and it's a loser's game. I mean, there is no better explanation for the pornography epidemic that we're dealing with about both men and women in our culture today. It is, it is, it, it, it's not an issue of shame. Please, 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 please. It's not an issue of shame, but can we be honest and real with what is actually going on? In the early stages, when I started to talk about this at college, I'd have guys lined up out the door. Help me, help me, help me. Okay, we can work on that. Now, roughly a third of the folks who are working through issues of, of pornography with masturbation are women. Can you imagine how challenging it is for a woman to come and talk to an old white guy about that particular issue, but because they realize this is fundamental to the loss of my identity, I need some help here. Hello. And, and the epidemic, I mean, the combined income of the porn industry on the internet alone dwarfs the combined income of the three major sports leagues. Why? Because we still long for intimacy. The desire is not illegitimate. The fulfillment of the desire is illegitimate. The desire is at the core level, longing for connection with another person and, through, and with that other person to God. Don't 
pray, take away my desire. God help you. That's not supposed to happen. You need to learn by the grace of God over time, sexual self-control, identity anchored in Christ. We could keep on going on, but that longing for intimacy pushes us in a certain direction and then finally God says, he's become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He's not built for it. He's gonna eat the fruit of the tree of life and live forever dead. Mm -mm, We gotta protect him. We gotta put an end stop on this so that we can work on redemption and so God's mercy is redeemed, is demonstrated here. The very next chapter, chapter four, highlights, uh, and I know I'm running tight on time, but fortunately the clock's not working, so I'm good. Um, And he preaches like 45 minutes, for crying out loud. Anyway, uh, so, 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 so in chapter four, you'll know the story, Adam and Eve, uh, uh, now outside the garden, have children, uh, two, two boys, and, and they get into a tussle, and the response of Cain, the, uh, the, the brothers, to kill his younger brother Abel? What? To kill his younger brother Abel. That's in one generation of the wheels coming off. And when he's asked, where is your brother? His answer is the second most tragic question in the entirety of human history. Am I my brother's keeper? Oh, buddy. Oh, buddy. Oh, oh, buddy. That's as sure a sign as any that you have forgotten who you are. Your brother's keeper. You don't understand. Your brother keeps you as well as you keeping him. You can't even be human without your brother. It's not your responsibility. It's your delight. It's your privilege to keep your brother. In fact, if you don't see him or her as part of the image of God, you've missed the whole point. So the longing, the desire for return home will inevitably find itself and we start to align our identity in all and everything else. We align it in gender, we align it in in, in attraction, we align it in our job. Remember the whole thing, we're built to work, but when we forget and turn the balance up down, we define ourselves by our work uh, and, and, and lose ourselves in our work, lose ourselves in our work, And on and on the list goes. So what's the solution? Well, that's next week. (laughs) But the short answer you know, the short answer you know is humility. Recover the dirt. Remember where you came from and who it is that gave you life. Let's pray. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit garden.church.